All right. Well, uh, we are at the end of a journey, believe it or not. Uh, starting on Christmas Eve, so for the last three and a half, four, four and a half, five months now, uh, we have been uh, camping out in the book of Matthew in this series called Becoming Disciples, Following Jesus Through Matthew. And we've um, been following Jesus' life uh, through the book of Matthew with this hope, with this goal, with this vision of like becoming disciples, of like becoming students of Jesus, becoming apprentices of Jesus, becoming learners of Jesus. Not to just like fill our heads with more Bible, to fill our heads with more theology, but to like use a really churchy word to like incarnate these sorts of things, to like begin to live them out uh, in our day-to-day lives. And uh, I hope it's been a meaningful uh, series for you. Uh, Matthew tends to be my favorite gospel, and so I've, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully, as a result of this, like, we've become disciples, whether for the first time or we've renewed our sense of our own sort of discipleship to Jesus. Um, but today we come to the end of this journey, and so uh, as we get ready to jump into that, uh, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Loving God, uh, we are grateful for this chance to... Together to be together today. Thank you for the the beautiful weather and um, start the sense of uh, love and uh, community that comes from being together. So as we turn now uh, to uh, wrestle with the scriptures together, we uh, acknowledge that your spirit is here among us, and we yield ourselves to your spirit and ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the way of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, uh, believe it or not, when it comes to uh, faith and spiritual life, uh, I have had all sorts of doubts throughout my life. And I get, that may be weird to hear, that may even be a bit uncomfortable because I'm a pastor, which means I'm something like a quote-unquote professional Christian. But it's the case. Like, I have had all sorts of doubts uh, throughout my life uh, as it pertains to faith and our spiritual life. And they're sort of like two broad strokes in which these uh, doubts can fit into, or reasons for these doubts. The first one is uh, what we might call like emotional reasons. Um, these are where like there are these ideas and these concepts that I know to be true about God, but there's some sort of disconnect between like my actual lived reality with these sorts of things. And the, the climactic moment of all of this, of course, is like losing my parents in high school, right? Um, I know that like God is all loving. I know that God is all good. I know... Uh, that God is capable of healing, and I know that God is all-powerful, and yet, that's not the experience I had, right? Um, and so, like, I, doubt kind of creeps into that as I begin to, like, probe around with that and ask the questions that surround that. But it's not just, like, my own experience with my loss, but it's, like, walking around with my eyes open, right? Like, looking around at, like, the lives of neighbors or, like, the lives of my friends or the lives of you all or, like, the, reading the headlines. Like, there's just this disconnect between all of these big, grand, robust, good, beautiful things that we know about God and the lived reality of many here on earth. But then the other sort of, like, reason for some of my doubts might be, like, intellectual reasons, and this really gets boiled down to one big idea, and that is God. <laughs> like, if you've ever tried to wrap your mind around God, you quickly know you can't wrap your mind around God. And if you've wrapped your mind around God, it's no longer God, right? <laughs> and so, like, just trying to, like, wrap my mind around 
God and who God is and what God is like leads to these doubts because it's like I just can't wrap my mind around it. For somebody like me, like this is how I exist in the world by trying to wrap my mind around things. So because of this, like I, I find myself like uh, at times carrying around all sorts of doubt. But I know that I'm not alone in this, right? <laughs> Uh, I've had a number of conversations with many of you to know that like doubt is something that like uh, many, if not most of us, have experienced in this uh, space. Many of us have had doubts, meaning like doubt with like a capitalized D, like this experience of doubt. And it was the season that um, perhaps was difficult, maybe even perhaps like painful. It led to us wrestling with all sorts of questions, asking all sorts of questions that felt uncomfortable, but it led ultimately to some sort of like expanding of our faith that we would be really grateful for on the other side. Some of us perhaps like currently have doubts, right? Like we find ourselves in that season of that capitalized D of grappling, asking all sorts of questions, wishing that God could just answer the questions that we have, ease the sort of discomfort and the frustration that we have, that we could just wrap our mind around these things of God. And then there's some of us who may have never had doubts and aren't sitting here wrestling with doubts. And if that's you this morning, like as we head into this conversation around doubt, like I guess my hope for you would be to know that like if doubt does creep in at some point, one, that you would know that you're not alone. And two, that you would know that um, doubt is actually like a really common experience within a life of faith. Because I think a genuine expression and a genuine like, walk of faith does not like, prevent doubt, but I think, in fact, will like, open the door to experiencing doubt in our life. And so uh, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, not just my doubt, but doubt in general. And I, I've often wondered, like, what would it take for like, doubt to just go away? Like, to alleviate all of the doubts in my life? Like, what would it take for me to live a life like, fully confident, without like any sort of like nagging question in the back of my mind saying what well what if and as the thought experiment goes i often think like what if like jesus stood face to face in front of me like tangibly physically b- flesh and blood jesus more specifically like the post resurrected jesus right like the biggest question of it all like can somebody actually be raised from the dead what if jesus stood in front of me with his nail scarred hands and feet and the wound in his side grabbed me by the shoulders shook me and said hey i'm real baby Maybe the doubt would actually go away, right? Apparently not, right? Because this is the same experience that we have uh, at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 28. So in Matthew chapter 28, we get to the, to the end of Matthew's story of Jesus' life, his teachings, his ministry, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. And we get to this moment after Jesus has been resurrected, after Jesus has appeared to the Marys and tells them to go and get the rest of the disciples and go to Galilee. Following that, we read... Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. But some doubted. Like again, this is like the post-resurrection. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. This is after like they have seen Jesus face to face, flesh and blood with his nail-scarred hands and feet, the wound in his side. Like here is Jesus. They can get their hands on him. And yet, some doubted. Which like squashes my, my thought experiment, right? Like maybe that wouldn't actually alleviate my doubt. Now pay attention to what happens next in the story because uh, I think that this is really telling. And Jesus came and said to them about the doubters, take them and bind them, throw them out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
No, Jesus didn't say that. Like, if you, please, that is satire. Like, nobody walk out of here thinking that's what Jesus says about the doubters, right? No, that's not what Jesus says. That's not how the story goes. In fact, the story just goes along. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like, the story just moves on. <laughs> like, the story just glosses over the fact that here in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, there are some who doubted. <laughs> and I find an awful lot of comfort in that, yeah? Because it's almost as if Jesus is standing there and Jesus, you know, knows all these things, right? And he knows that there are some here who doubt. And it's almost as if Jesus is like, uh, yeah, right, I get it. Like, it's not every day somebody raises from the dead. It's kind of why it's a big deal in this thing that we're doing here, right? Like, if you doubt, that's okay. Like, let's just move on with the story. You're still invited to be part of this thing, right? And I think that's what's so amazing with this story is like there, there's this assumption that those who doubted, like, stay part of this movement, like, they stay part of this thing that Jesus is doing, that they keep following Jesus despite the presence of their doubt. And this feels so, like, counterintuitive, right? Because if, like, your goal is to, like, lead some sort of revolution, which is, like, essentially what, like, this thing of Jesus became, like, you don't want doubt, uh, people with doubt leading the way, but you want the William Wallaces that are willing to, like, paint their face and go charging first, uh, first ahead of the crowd screaming freedom, Right? You don't want the doubters, though. But more than just, like, in the case of, like, a revolution, I think when we think about, like, the present moment that we find ourselves in, in our present culture, like, we, uh, we tend to have such a bias towards, like, our cognitive process and, like, our thoughts. Like, our thoughts seem to have, like, the final word on things. And the way that we arrange our mental furniture seems to be, like, of the utmost importance when it comes to things like faith. Uh, I think one story in my life that like encapsulates this so well uh, came my sophomore year of college. And uh, I was sitting in my dorm room at my desk, and a friend of mine who was also a ministry major came in, and he looked up at uh, the bookshelf on top of my desk, and he saw a particular book. Now, this book matters for a handful of us who were uh, paying attention to things at this particular moment. The book was Love Wins by Rob Bell. Now, if you're not familiar with Rob Bell, uh, he was like this hugely influential uh, megachurch pastor. Started a church and like overnight became like filled with thousands of people. And uh, he was asking all sorts of questions, uh, living out his faith in a, a unique way that was really captivating to a large number of people. And so ultimately this led to like this book that he wrote called Love Wins where he began to ask questions about the quote-unquote traditional view of hell, um, to use the technical language like eternal conscious torment. And he, he, it was a book that was filled with all sorts of questions presenting other alternative views to like what we might think of when we think of the idea of hell. This did not go over well for him. <laughs> it was a widely popular book, but for uh, some with power in certain movements of Christianity, like they essentially like wrote him off, and it eventually led to him like leaving the uh, leaving his particular position at this church and um, like uh, being exiled from this particular group of Christians. I had this book on my shelf, and my friend looks at it, and he looks at me, and he goes, "You should be careful with that." I said, oh yeah? Have you read it? He goes, oh no, never. <laughs> and it just struck me. I was like, we're ministry majors. Like, these are the things we should be reading, right? Because these are the things that like, the people in the churches that we'll be pastoring like, will be reading and the questions that they'll be asking. Like, we should be willing to engage in these sorts of conversations. And yet for my friend here, 
like, despite the fact that I hadn't read it at this point either, despite the fact that he didn't know if I was even asking these questions, the, the presence of potential doubt <laughs> was enough to almost disqualify me from uh, the, this way of Jesus. And I think that this is often how uh, doubt, particularly among faith, seems to uh, work for many of us. That, like, the presence of doubt is just enough of, like, grounds for disqualification. And yet, this doesn't seem to be the case for Jesus. <laughs> because I think the presence of these three words, but some doubted, and the fact that it just gets glossed over entirely, seems to suggest, suggest that perhaps our doubts actually don't disqualify us. And this feels like really good news for doubters like me. <laughs> because this means that our doubts don't disqualify us. It means that we don't get disqualified from the people of God just because we find ourselves asking certain questions. It means that, like, the wrestling, the grappling uh, with the questions that we find ourselves with don't disqualify us, but instead, like, are actually kind of assumed. <laughs> Again, the story just moves on, and it's assumed that like, there will be some with doubts, and that uh, those that have doubts are continuing to be invited into this movement. And I think that this presence of these three words, but some doubted, seemed to be like an act of grace for doubt-filled believers from this point on up until this present moment. But I think at this point, it's important to like, uh, parse out a little bit of difference here. Because I think there's a difference between what we might call doubt and what we might call cynicism. When it comes to doubt, we might say that doubt is to call something into question. To say, like, I don't know, and I have questions about this. But to, like, slip into cynicism is to, like, call something into question with, like, contempt. Like, you know if you've encountered somebody who's cynical, right? Like, there's a certain energy. There's a certain sort of, like, vibe that they carry. There's a certain sort of, like, heat that comes from them when they ask questions. And I think to, like, to doubt is to say, like, I don't know. But I think to, like, be cynical is to say, like, one of two things. Like, I know, and if you don't know, you're an ignorant fool. Or, I don't know, and if you do know, you're an ignorant fool, right? <laughs> and as we find ourselves in the season of Easter, uh, coming right out of the events of Holy Week, like, I think uh, the passion narratives are filled with all sorts of cynics. It's not just that people are standing on the sidelines, like, wondering, like, oh, could Jesus be who he says he is? But it's filled with all sorts of cynics who are like calling into question with all sorts of contempt, like, like actively engaging in hostile acts towards Jesus, like actively mocking him that ultimately lead to like his brutal public execution by the state on the cross. But here's the thing about cynicism. It costs us nothing. <laughs> and cynicism is actually a really sort of easy thing because it costs us nothing. Because when it comes to cynicism, like, these are people who find themselves standing on the sidelines, or worse yet, like, even up in the crowd. But to doubt, like, to doubt is actually costly. Because to doubt means that you are staying in the arena, staying in the game, continuing to grapple, continuing to wrestle with the questions that you have, trying to seek further and better understanding. See, I think Matthew's gospel was really intentional to say, but some doubted rather than, but some were cynical. And I think that this distinction is important. Because we live in an age that is so incredibly cynical. Like, cynicism is just like the way of being. But perhaps doubt isn't actually the greatest threat to our faith. But perhaps cynicism is. And so if this is the case, like, what does it look like for us to... Uh, like, in some ways, like, push back on cynicism. 
What does it look like to um, not allow the doubts that we have, again, which are like part of a natural, honest, genuine walk of faith? Like, how can we allow these doubts to not like pull us from the game, pull us from the arena to the sideline, or worse yet, even up into the stands? When it comes to things like faith and doubt, I think one of the um, perhaps the, one of the most helpful voices of um, the last number of years uh, is an author by the name of Rachel Held Evans. In one of her books, she writes, a lot of religious folk think that they can help by insisting over and over again how important it is to just believe, as if belief were something one could conjure by force of will. But in my experience, simply wanting to believe doesn't work. The only thing that quote-unquote works, and probably only about half the time, is the long and storied spiritual discipline the sages of the faith refer to as fake it till you make it. (laughs) Go to church. Take communion, show up at the homeless shelter, march in the protest, pray for healing, rebuke the chaos, act like you believe, and maybe at long last, you will. Move your feet and your heart will catch up. How do we reject cynicism and not allow our doubts to pull us into that place? Fake it till you make it. (laughs) How's that advice, right? I know for a long time, like I... uh, I really hated that idea of like faking it till you make it. But then I began to realize that like the way that I had often heard fake it till you make it was like fake it so that you fit in. Fake it and pretend like you don't have doubts so that like you won't be disqualified by those in your community. But that's not at all what like she's talking about here. She means like continue to show up, like continue to do the things of faith, continue to walk in the way of Jesus, even if your heart and mind may not be there. Don't hide these doubts from uh, the people around you. In fact, invite others in to wrestle with them as you walk out this way of Jesus together. And perhaps all you're doing in that is allowing yourself some time and some space for the rest of you to catch up with your feet, your heart and your mind and your soul. And apparently like this is how like, we as human beings grow and evolve and expand and change for the better. Because uh, Brene Brown notes that we know the way that we mo- to move information from your head to your heart is through your hands. <laughs> like the way that we get stuff from our head down into the core of who we are is through our, our hands by actually like living these things out, doing these sorts of things. Or again, to quote another really churchy word, to incarnate these things, to put flesh and blood on them. But I don't think that this is just a one-way street either because some of us, like, you know, like, you, you know something deep within your gut and yet, like, you can't quite, like, arrange the mental furniture quite yet. And I think the way that we move information from our heart and our soul into our head is also through our hands. So the way that, like, we prevent, like, allowing ourselves to slip into cynicism, stay in the game. <laughs> Fake it till you make it. <laughs> Uh, keep showing up, keep wrestling, keep asking questions, bring others along, keep searching, keep pursuing a better understanding, a fuller understanding of who God is. Now, this may be like a really strange ending to a series called Becoming Disciples, right? (laughs) But I think it's actually the perfect ending for a series like this. Because it's been my experience that when I like do a deep dive into some sort of study or some sort of idea, like in the midst of it, like I am like on cloud nine, like I'm charging full ahead, like filled with all sorts of passion to use like some old school uh, Christian language on fire. Yeah. But then as soon as that experience is over, like the next day I'm filled with all sorts of doubt, wondering if it was ever actually true. (laughs) 
And I wonder if maybe that could be the case for some of us tomorrow. That, that last four months with Jesus, that was great. But I don't know if I believe any of that today. And so I think like to talk about doubt and how to avoid cynicism in the midst of doubt is actually the best way to like end a series called Becoming Disciples. <laughs> because the best way you become a disciple is to not let this stuff sit in your head but instead to like allow it to move to your heart through your hands, to incarnate these things, to actually become like living, breathing disciples of these things, to live these sorts of things out in our day-to-day life. And so my friends, uh, may you know that your doubts don't disqualify you. Uh, may you grapple with your faith. May you grapple with the questions. May you keep searching time and time again. May you not give in to cynicism. May you not uh, give up. May you not go among the stands. But may you stay in the game. May you fake it till you make it. (laughs) Trusting the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. That the one who has begun a good work in you will see it through to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.